Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to another installment of In-House Legal. My name is Randy Milch, and I am very happy to be with Ivan Fong, the Senior Vice President for Legal Affairs and General Counsel of 3M Company. Ivan has built a distinguished career in the law, from a big law partnership to senior in-house positions in some of America's finest legal departments, all punctuated by stints of public service at the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. Ivan, welcome to In-House Legal. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Very, very good to be with you, too. Um, Ivan, I want to take a few minutes and uh, go over your background for our listeners. Um, You have quite a distinguished background. You started off as a a chemist, a chemical engineer. Did you know when you were at MIT getting that your 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 undergraduate and your master's degree that you you wanted to go into the law or were you thinking about a science career at that point? So it's a question I uh, think about a lot because most of the things that I've done in my career were not planned at all, and, and this is an example. Uh, I grew up um, with an, in an immigrant family, and so um, my parents were scientists, and their friends were scientists, and so I grew up not knowing any lawyers, um, and uh, no one in my family to this day is a lawyer. So I went to MIT thinking I would be an engineer, and so that's what I decided to major in. And it really was over the course of maybe my junior or senior year that I realized that there was more to life than than engineering. Um, And really, I credit uh, a professor of mine who taught a course on the Supreme Court, who after the course really encouraged me to think about law school or public policy school. And he was the first person who planted that seed that I then pursued. I was very active in the student newspaper, and so I knew I liked to write. And at the end, I decided I would apply, and if I got in, that would be great. If not, I was already on a track to get my master's and possibly get a PhD. And so, you know, my life was, uh, this would have been a turn, but it wasn't something that I had set out to do. Um, And then it happened, and uh, as I tell people, it was the second best decision I made. Uh, Going to law school, I'm very happy as a lawyer. Um, the best decision I made was marrying my wife. And, and you have that in appropriate order, Ivan. I, I, I can assure you, having met your wife, I can realize that you, like I, married way up. Um, so let's, let's, so, so you, you go to Stanford Law School, you're president of Law Review, you, do your, uh, you, do, you clerk for two tremendous uh, judges, Ab Mikva and Justice O'Connor, correct? Correct. And then... Then you have to choose your, the course of your legal career, and, and you go into big law. You go to Covington. What was your thinking about that? Why, why Do you think that that's an important step for folks? Well, it depends on, on the individual, of course. You know, I had sort of three kinds of uh, paths in mind. One was a, a traditional private practice path. 
um, but we'll get to this later. I was very interested in public service, and so I thought uh, after clerking, uh, you know, going into the government uh, is not a bad um, career path or option. Um, and either public interest or teaching was something that appealed to me. And at the end of the decision-making process, which, of course, my wife played a, a critical role, we decided that since we had you know, just started a family uh, as a law clerk, you don't make that much money. This was way before the bonuses that you see now for, for law clerks. It was important, basically, as my wife put it, to get a real job. So that's what led me to think about going to a law firm. And then once I made that decision, I interviewed in, in Washington, in California, primarily. Uh, there were a few other places I looked and ultimately decided I'd like both the practice in Washington as well as the people um, in the firms uh, that I met and ultimately the kind of practice that I could build at a firm like Covington and Burlington. And and did you center your practice uh, on your scientific background? I, I note that you are a you're a you're a certified patent attorney. Is that something that you did? Was that was IP part of your practice at Covington, or what, what did you, what was your what did you center in on? It's a it's a very interesting story because it was not at all the way you um, may think as as planned. So, hearkening back to the story I told about taking this class in college that changed my life. The advice I got then, which is the advice I applied when deciding where to practice and who to practice with, is choose the person, not the subject matter area. And so when selecting classes, take classes from the best professors, because a great professor can make a dull subject interesting, but a bad professor can make the most interesting subject dull. And if you apply the same principle when looking for a job, again, I had the luxury of, of having some choice, and I, I understand that not everybody is in that position, but if you do have that option, choose to work with people who are, first of all, great at what they do and take an interest in teaching and are people from whom you can learn and are people whom you respect people who really practice law in the way that you would like to practice law. And so as a result, yes, of course, I wanted to practice in areas that would uh, take advantage of my engineering background. And uh, environmental law was one such area. So that was uh, uh, an area of practice. But the second area of practice actually was not something that I had planned and yet was one of the best decisions I made. There was a partner at Covington and Burling named Chuck Ruff, who was a Watergate prosecutor, had become president of the DC bar, uh, later became White House counsel, you know, really a, an icon in the Washington DC uh, bar. And so I was immediately attracted to him. He practiced white collar criminal law. I loved criminal law and criminal procedure. And I ended up working quite a bit with Chuck Ruff I learned so much from him, and I know we're going to get to this. You know, today when I think back on the experiences that I had in my current job, doing and uh, knowing how to do internal investigations and focusing on compliance and white collar issues was one of the most important experiences that I can bring. To 
to the jobs that I've had since then. The, the intersection with technology is that a lot of the clients were at the time pharmaceutical or medical device companies. And so it was very helpful for me to be able to explain to an assistant U.S. attorney or an agency lawyer how the technology uh, works and how the people uh, interacted in such a way that told a story about what happened. Um, and so it drew upon my, my, my interest and background in, in, um, in journalism, actually, uh, to tell a story about, uh, about what happened as, as part of the internal investigation. So, so that was a very fortuitous uh, turn in the career. I also did a lot of appellate work which was relevant to my background as a law clerk. Uh, but increasingly, I did what then was not really called e-commerce, but sort of high-tech issues. Uh, there were some First Amendment encryption uh, cases that were bubbling up, and I got attached to those. So it really was a very broad-based litigation, uh, white-collar criminal practice. And it wasn't until the very end of my time at Covington where the large firms started to get more involved in patent litigation. And they noticed my background and said, you know, Ivan, would you be interested in building a patent litigation practice at the firm? And the firm had been very good to me. And I, of course, said, sure. So I took the patent bar, passed the patent bar, which, by the way, I don't recommend if, if you can avoid it. Um, but it was great. I, I was there sort of to try to build a patent litigation practice uh, at a time when not very many large firms were were doing that. Yeah, and patent, of course, patent work has taken so many turns uh, in the intervening years, as you and I both know, uh, and the possibility of it being a real drag on 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 productive uh, efforts at companies, but at the same time trying to defend those rights is critically important. It's a big public policy issue that that we've both played around in. I know. So you're a partner at Covington, uh, working in patents and other areas, uh, and at the tail end of the Clinton administration, or near the end of the Clinton administration, you become the Deputy Associate Attorney General. Now, how did that How did that transformation occur? Well, again, it was not planned. In fact, um, I had made a commitment to build the patent litigation practice, and I figured it would take me you know, more than five years to do that, and I was only about in year two, two and a half, when somebody that I met during my interviews called me, and this was somebody who was at the time managing partner of a firm in Los Angeles, whom I had met, and, you know, we had had the standard interview, but since then, not spoken with one another, though we did have a few things in common. We had both uh, clerked uh, on the D.C. Circuit. He had gone to Stanford as well. I had followed his career. He apparently followed mine. In any event, he calls me and says, I'm going to be in Washington. I've just been nominated to be the number three person at the Department of Justice. So there's the Attorney General, who was Janet Reno at the time, the Deputy Attorney General, Eric Holder, and he was going to be the number three. Would you be interested in having breakfast? So I said, yes, of course, I'd love to see you. So we have breakfast. Long and short of it is, he says, if I am confirmed, I will have the opportunity to hire uh, a deputy or two, and I wanted to know whether you were interested. So I go home, I tell my wife, she's very, you know, uh, 
She doesn't talk to me for a couple of days because, you know, this would have been a big pay cut. Um, but again, following this um, advice of working with terrific people, um, this was somebody whom I respected. His name is Ray Fisher. He then later went on to be a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals judge. And, you know, I knew a number of the other uh, senior uh, leaders at the Department of Justice, all terrific people. And so it really was an opportunity that I did not seek, um, but was something that I was very honored and, and pleased to have the opportunity to do. And, and while you were there um, as, as the Deputy Associate Attorney General, what, what areas of, of the Associates, uh, Associate Attorney General's office did you have particular uh, responsibility? So again, by this time, I had decided that to the extent there was going to be an arc to my career, it would be about law and science and technology and policy. So I naturally gravitated to what was then a very new thing, uh, the internet, um, as well as my traditional experience in environmental law. So Department of Justice has an environment and natural resources division. Uh, so I handle a lot of those matters, a lot of civil division issues, large procurement disputes, other kinds of disputes with the government. We had a number of very big antitrust cases. This was the time of the Microsoft antitrust case. So I got involved in that case. Um, and don't forget, this was the time of the impeachment of the president. So a number of very difficult constitutional law, uh, white collar criminal type issues where normally the Department of Justice represents the government, the, the law enforcement interests. Here we had a special prosecutor and independent counsel uh, who, who wore that hat. Uh, and so we represented uh, the other interests of government, in particular, I worked on the Secret Service uh, argument that uh, Secret Service agents should not be permitted to testify um, um, to, in response to an independent counsel subpoena. But that is all to one side. I'd say the, the bulk of what I did had to do with technology-related legal issues. And uh, I think it's fascinating that... Uh the the Department of Justice at the time when the internet issues were just bubbling along. We spend so much time today thinking about, uh, you know, the potential problems associated with the internet. Uh, and it's amazing to think that only 15 years ago, it was such a newer part of our lives. Um, but what were the types of issues uh, at justice that you were dealing with uh, uh, as in in the, in the Associate Attorney General's office, particularly about the Internet and unlawful conduct in the, involving the Internet. So you're right. It, it's been a fascinating journey, and it's hard to imagine or remember the time when email was new, when being able to go to a chat room and, and have anonymous communications, and the fact that, uh, you know, this was becoming more of a ubiquitous, uh, technology, um, and it really created concern uh, in the administration generally that we wanted to balance both the positive effects, so we wanted it to grow and become the vehicle that it is today for commerce, for education, for lots of socially useful purposes, while at the same time ensuring that 
technologies, of course, can be used for good and for bad, uh, that people who had uh, malicious or other uh, intent uh, would not be able to use it uh, to the disadvantage of the public. So there was a very strong interest in the law enforcement community to analyze how this new technology would affect traditional legal uh, doctrine and, and processes. And so as you alluded to, the White House uh, uh, created a task force. This was an executive order to uh, uh, create a task force to look at uh, the challenge of unlawful conduct involving the use of the Internet. And so I was very heavily involved in uh, representing and, and, and editing and writing a portion of the report that essentially said that uh, you know, these new technologies could be used for good and for bad, that there were a lot of physical analogs so that a lot of existing legal doctrine could still apply. For example, fraud remains fraud, whether you use the telephone uh, or mail or email. And so some law doesn't really need to change. At the same time, there's a second category where, yes, if there are new ways of committing crimes using, for example, computers as the mechanism for disruption or uh, uh, theft of trade secrets, uh, that creates new kinds of conduct that uh, Congress and others need to address. And then the third piece is law enforcement may need additional tools to ensure that what used to be a very you know, limited way to commit a crime, right? So if you physically had to distribute, say, child pornography, you could only collect so much in your basement, in your garage, and you'd have to mail it out. Child pornography on the internet was growing by leaps and bounds, and there was a concern that this was a new uh, me mechanism of distribution of information that was very difficult uh, to get our hands around. So it raised a lot of very difficult and interesting issues that um, I had the um, uh, great fortune of being able to think about and write about and, and, and ultimately uh, give some advice about. And I think that uh, it's fair to say that your, your authorship of this report, The Electronic Frontier, The Challenge of Unlawful Conduct Involving the Use of the Internet in 2000, seemed to set you up pretty well for your st next stint out of from that, General Electric, you went in-house. So I think people are very interested in how people choose their first in-house job. Uh, I assume that you followed the theory or the, or, the, or the analog to the theory you had of the most interesting professor by looking at a very interesting and high-powered legal department as a reason to go in-house rather than to return to Covington. That's right. I didn't know it at the time, but this was either in the middle of or the beginning of a significant shift in the legal profession toward in-house legal departments. My own experience, once again, was, was fairly um, fortuitous and happenstance. Uh, I happened to know people who knew the general counsel of GE, whom I did not know, uh, but a fellow by the name of Ben Heinemann, who, again, at the time, unbeknownst to me, had, had really built a, a first-class legal department at GE. 
he apparently had been asked by Jack Welch, at the time CEO of GE, to help develop a strategy to transform GE into an e-commerce or internet company. So the fear at the time was that there were all these dot-coms and that they were going to disintermediate and ultimately take over uh, the uh, large company uh, marketplace. And so Ben Heinemann said, well, if we're going to make a big push into e-commerce, I better find an e-commerce lawyer. And so that's when he called. And his pitch was pretty simple. He said, you know, if you were in a law firm and you were told that all the most interesting questions of a big, complex client like GE were yours to have, you would have died and gone to heaven, right? You have this amazing client and it's yours and you get to work on all of their most interesting issues. That's the proposition that he basically offered. He said, come up to Fairfield, Connecticut for a day, meet some people, and I'll tell you more. At the time, working in-house was not on my radar screen. As you recall, I had made a commitment to continue to build the patent practice at the law firm, and so my default assumption was to go back uh, to the firm and sort of pick up where I left off. Uh, unfortunately, fate intervened. I did go up to Connecticut, met an amazing group of uh, lawyers. Uh, ben had assembled, as I said, law firm partners who were the best uh, in their fields. And I saw how right he was and is about the value of being close to the client, understanding the business, its technology, understanding the strategy, and really being more a part of the decision-making of a very large, interesting client. So that's what sold me. It was a bit of a sell on the family front to move from Washington. We had just bought a slightly larger house that to this day my wife still refers to as her dream house that we never got to live in because we ended up having to move to Connecticut. And you spent time at GE in a number of positions, um, uh, culminating in, in as the ch chief privacy officer uh, and then general, I'm really culminating as the general counsel of one of the GE subsidiaries. Is How did you chart your course internally at GE? Was that something that you spent time thinking about? I, I think it's, and it's important for people who are in-house to remember uh, that they are the masters of their own careers. And I'm interested for folks who have had multiple internal jobs at the same place, how they charted their own course. That's right. I, I agree with you uh, about being master of your own destiny. The caveat I give whenever people ask about my career journey is I don't know to what extent you know my story really applies uh, to to others, but I'll, I'm happy to tell the story. So when I got to GE, new position, which I think has its pluses, which is you get to create and define your role. Um, but at the same time, it placed a premium on my being able to get out and meet people and develop relationships and really, you know, herd cats toward, you know, a goal of, of having a vision where we had e-commerce issues uh, solved and that we knew what we were doing when it came to things like click, click wrap legal agreements to privacy issues to uh, IP issues. You know, this was a time when there were questions about whether you could patent 
um, uh, software and other uh, IP, I'm sorry, uh, IT uh, new uh, applications. So a lot of incredibly novel, difficult issues as to which there were no clear answers. So it was a nice transition from a policy-making role. I then broadened what I did. So you're right. So I was at GE for six years. The first three years or so, the e-commerce issues really um, evolved to becoming privacy issues because privacy then became uh, a much more significant part of not only the external landscape, but how the company internally thought about how do we protect data, whether it's customer data, medical data, employee data. Um, we were dealing with the European Union, so there were many challenges there negotiating and trying to figure out how to, how to comply with the EU Data Protection Directive. And then one day during you know, a, a, a review uh, meeting with my boss, the general counsel, he asks whether or not I think of myself as a generalist or a specialist. And I thought back on my career and I thought, well, as, as a law clerk, you're a generalist. In a law firm, I was a generalist commercial civil litigator doing some white collar work. At the Department of Justice, clearly I was a, a generalist handling everything from Native American issues to environmental issues to antitrust to technology law issues. So really my job at, at GE was the first real specialist job I had. And so I answered, you know, I, I really like being a generalist. He then said, well, uh, I think, you know, you should think about becoming general counsel of one of the GE businesses. I said, fine, I'm happy to think about it. Um, my only condition is I can't move because I've got, you know, kids and our oldest was in high school at the time. So he came back to me and he said, well, here are three GE business leaders. Go talk to them and tell me what you think. So they were all in Connecticut. I met them. I really bonded with one of them. And it was in the area of commercial finance. These were all GE capital businesses. And I told the general counsel, I have very little financial services background. And he said something, again, life-changing for me, which was, don't worry, you'll figure it out. Right? And what he meant was, you will have people on your team who are subject matter experts. You will learn what you need to know. And that the reason I'm putting you forward or giving you this opportunity is to stretch you and because what's really important is to put somebody who is smart and who has judgment and who will learn the substance to deliver outstanding legal services. So that was my first big break in the sense that I was a new general counsel, but it was a great uh, platform on which to learn how to be a general counsel. I had a reasonable-sized legal team. I was you know, not far from headquarters, so I could... Um, uh, keep in touch with uh, uh, the, the uh, others in the corporate legal department. So it was really a wonderful opportunity for me to learn how to be a general counsel. And uh, you quickly had the uh, the opportunity to to be the chief to be the chief legal officer at Cardinal Health. Was that uh, how, how did that transition occur? So once again, unplanned. I had planned to stay at GE. GE was very good to me and had planned on transferring me to 
one of its industrial businesses to be a general counsel, so things were going very well. When a recruiter called, recruiter said, I have a job for you to be general counsel of a healthcare company, top Fortune 20 company. I said, no, I'm not interested. I'm very happy at GE. They're in the process of relocating me to Florence, Italy. How great is that to be general counsel of its new oil and gas business, which as a chemical engineer was just about the perfect fit. Long story short, he persuaded me that, you know, it might take a while for me to become the general counsel of GE, that these opportunities to become public company general counsel um, are not that frequent, that I should really spend a day in Columbus, Ohio. So I did all of that. I met the people at Cardinal Health. I discovered here's a really great company. Healthcare is one-sixth of the U.S. economy. Indeed, it's a Fortune 20 public company. And we fell in love with Columbus, Ohio as a great place to continue to raise our children. So long story short, made the move to Ohio to become general counsel of Cardinal Health. Your career has so many high Cardinal Health, going back into the as the general counsel of the Department of Homeland Security, and once again dealing with so many of the national security issues and cybersecurity issues that you had to face. I think, in fact, that's you and I had our first telephone conversation while you were general counsel of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, let's let's shift the conversation though a little bit and talk about across the time that you have. Uh, been in-house uh, and in, and also at Covington. I know that pro bono activity has been incredibly important to you and to your career. How do you how do you encapsulate for those who who s- remain skeptical about in-house counsel participating in pro bono? How do you encapsulate your response to that and why it's so important for for in-house counsel to do their part on the pro bono for pro bono work? Well, I think it's a personal decision um, at the outset, um, but I think I'm such a proponent and supporter for all of the same reasons that in a law firm, there's a great tradition of doing pro bono. I think I start with the position that practicing law is a privilege uh, and uh, the state grants a license to um, uh, give us this privilege and part of our responsibility to ensure uh, uh, access to justice and to ensure that uh, people receive services is to give back to the community. And one way we can do that through our specialized training and knowledge is through pro bono work. But almost as important, if not more important, are the experiences that you gain. I think I tell in-house lawyers that you learn a lot doing pro bono There's such a great need in the community. I know you and I had talked about the fact that, you know, thousands of people every day um, face legal issues. They may not even realize they are legal issues, whether they're eviction or family or children's law issues, debt collection. Um, And uh, something like, you know, 80% of uh, the need is, is unmet. So I think, you know, for all of those reasons, uh, it's a great thing to do, and I think, to me, it's very important for the corporate community to set a good example. I know, for example, that 3M 
has a very significant community affairs, community giving um, uh, effort. And so we are able to be part of that by doing pro bono work. And so it aligns perfectly with the larger corporate value in supporting the communities in which our employees work and live. Yeah, I agree 100%, Ivan. I think it also fundamentally, if you believe that uh, society needs the rule of law to smooth out the rough edges and you accept the type of figures that you pointed out that so many people have legal issues today uh, and disproportionately the poor and the disadvantaged do not have the type of, of uh, representations that's necessary for them to be uh, fully functioning members of our society because of prior convictions or absence of resources or any number of, of disadvantages that folks have, it's, it's, it, it, you can't, on the one hand, believe in the rule of law and on the other hand, be parsimonious when it comes to, to providing folks the legal representation they need to be part of society. So I hope that you, know, uh, you continue uh, the great efforts at 3M that I know you have uh, at your other places to provide uh, legal assistance. Ivan, thank you for uh, your comments on pro bono, which I know you've uh, maintained uh, as a principal part of your general counselship at 3M, as you did at Cardinal. Uh, and uh, I, I, I just want to applaud that. I know that uh, uh, it's how important it is to uh, society for uh, there to be equal access to justice. And I want to thank you ag again, Ivan, for being with us. Uh, on this edition of uh, the on the Legal Talk Network. Thank you, uh, Randy, for the opportunity to share some thoughts, and uh, thank you for doing this. And I wish you every success in the new year. And and you too, Ivan. Thanks. Great talking with you. And you. That's been our show on the Legal Talk Network. This is Randy Milch. Join us again for another great edition of. In the views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.